0: Welcome to this episode of SDI Encounters, a podcast on spiritual direction and spiritual companionship. I'm Anne Lancaster. Thank you for listening. Learn more about our work and the work of spiritual direction and spiritual companionship on our website, sdicompanions.org. In this week's episode, Matt Whitney speaks with Paul Bergmeier on the history of spiritual direction and supervision. Paul has been accompanying others in spiritual direction for 14 years now. A former industrial researcher and retired high school teacher He has a master's degree in holistic spirituality and a certificate in spiritual direction from Chestnut Hill College. Certificates in the supervision of spiritual direction from Together in the Mystery and Mercy Center, Burlingame, and trained at Chestnut Hill College and the Ignatius Jesuit Center in Guelph, Canada to accompany others in the spiritual exercises of Ignatius of Loyola. A member of Bryn Mawr Presbyterian Church for many years, he has developed and taught a number of adult education classes. Paul lives in Wayne, Pennsylvania with his wife Sharon, a piano-playing chemistry professor at Bryn Mawr College. In his spare time, Paul enjoys gardening with Sharon, woodworking, learning jazz improvisation on his trumpet, singing, and writing.
1: Paul Bergmayer, it's good to good to be with you here. Uh, thanks yeah, for thank you. the time. Yeah, so Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself for those in the SDI community who haven't met you. And I actually have heard through the grapevine that a few people do. so.
2: Oh, okay. Okay. So um, let's see. I was trained as a chemist. So I have a PhD in chemistry and met my wife in graduate school. And then we got jobs. I, I decided I wanted a job in industry. So I worked in industry for about 17 years. And just after 9-11, I got laid off. And it was I was actually on retreat when I found that I was laid off. So it was kind of an interesting way of processing losing a job of that that job at the time was 15 years. But uh, my director at the time, who I had known probably eight years at that point, invited me to do the exercises. And he said, well, you got the time, why don't you do them? And I said, sure. And then after I finished the exercises, it took about nine months, uh, he says, why well, don't you check out this, this program at Chestnut Hill College, which is close by on um, a spiritual direction training program and a master's in holistic spirituality. And so I checked it out. And I was like, yeah, that's really cool. I mean, it was different for me because I went to a technical school at, or undergraduate and then I did research and graduate program. And so it was like, this is really different. I had to write papers and stuff that I had never done before. So that was it was scary, but um, it was good. So I finished that and then I was helping with a, sp- a spiritual formation program at Wernersville, the retreat center in Wernersville for some years, Chestnut Hill. And I did that for about five years. And I says, you know what? I think I want to know more. So I started to look into supervision programs. And the one I picked first was uh, Maria Tattoo Bowen's Together in the Mystery program, which at the time was out in California. And so I did that. And when I was finished with that program, I felt like, ah, eh, let me see you know, if there's anything else I could do for her because I liked what she was doing. And she says, I'm interested in the history of supervision. And she had gone back to the, like about the time SDI was forming, really, with her history. And I said, "Okay, well, let me look into it. I had had experience at Wernersville and kind of knew some of the people there and so could look at that. And then I also got interested in the Center for Religious Development in Cambridge, the Barry Connolly's program. And so I did that. I wrote a couple of blogs for her that she had on her website for a while. And I thought that was it. And then I started here and there noticing things, people talking about history and uh, still work. So I, I beca- after I got laid off, I became a teacher, I taught high school for 18 years but all the time doing spiritual direction with my goal of having like a retirement career of doing spiritual direction. So I was doing this, doing this spiritual direction and got interested in what other programs were out there. What else was going on? I got interested in doing the exercise in giving the exercises. And so began to research the history of that. And it just kind of slowly became this snowball that was going downhill. And once I retired, which was three years ago, all of a sudden, I was like, "Ah, I have all this free time. Let me really dig into it. And so I spent a lot of time looking at the Institute for Spiritual Leadership, which was Lucy Abbott Tucker's program. She took it over from Paul Robb, and I was interested in them starting. And so I did that. And then I started going to like I went to the Senecal Archives in Chicago. And this past September, I went to the Jesuit archives in St. Louis and I was at Creighton and I was at St. Louis University just researching and found all this stuff that really is fascinating. So, you know, I had this picture of what spiritual direction was as, you know, kind of starting with the desert fathers and mothers and kind of moving forward in time and being kind of the same thing. And that turns out to be not the case at all. And so that's kind of in a nutshell. So what precipitated me kind of getting it together is a local spiritual directors group called Spiritual Directors Circle invited me to give a talk a few weeks ago about my research, and I began to gather it and try to tell a story that made sense in a 60-minute in a talk. And that was really helpful for me to kind of start seeing some of the patterns, some of the reasons why spiritual direction in its modern incarnation started, what the earlier spiritual direction efforts were like and where they came from and why they happened, so it just evolved. And now I have this story that seems to be fairly coherent. There's some holes, things that I don't know. And I'd like to go back and find out about them. But that's where I'm at right now.
1: Yeah, thank you. I mean, history is a story, right? I mean, It has the word story in the word. And it's, it's uh, mm-hmm. a recounting of of things that happened. And I want to get into your research. But there are actually two things that sort of piques my curiosity about your mm-hmm. your own personal story. Mm-hmm. Really, just the uh, the way that you evolved and grew as a spiritual director out of just the ordinary of your life and the transition, you went from being a chemist to being yes. a spiritual director. And, you know, and I think of, you know, chemistry or working in industry, it takes kind of an engineering mind, a real left brain kind of work, and then moving into a vocation and a ministry that is very heart centered. Mm hmm. And I wonder if you could talk about that experience for you, like moving from kind of that left brain, head knowing, intellectual knowing to more of a heart knowing.
2: Yeah, I think I'd mentioned two things, and they're probably equally of as important. So I am a musician. I play trumpet. And actually, my wife and I met. She plays piano, and that's how we met. She's a chemist as well. So we met and started to play. So that right brain, intuitive, sensing what's happening in the music is there for me and well developed. So it isn't that I didn't have it. It's just that I didn't use it most of the time in my research. So I would argue that there is some right brain stuff going on or heart stuff going on when you're doing research in terms of you feel moved to do something. And you got to ask, where's that coming from? That's not really an intellectual thing. That's something else in you that's kind of driving you go to a certain direction. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is so I was. I use the term raised in the Salvation Army. Uh, Salvation Army is a religion or a faith tradition. And uh, my parents were officers, which would be preachers. And uh, we went to the Salvation Army all through my growing up until I went off to college. I didn't react very well to the Salvation Army because it was at the time kind of bordering on fundamentalist. And I was just like, no. And so I had this quite almost, well, it was visceral. It was almost PTSD reaction. Matter of fact, the story I tell is somebody offered a spiritual autobiography class at church, and we were to tell our story and read it aloud. And I realized when I was reading aloud that I couldn't say the words Jesus Christ without choking. I'm like, hmm. Okay, there's something here. And then another kind of important thing was we were getting our first son baptized at the front of the church. And I'm thinking, you know, I need to kind of get over this reaction because he's going to start asking me questions about faith. And so I need to be able to talk about that. So I began to see a pastor and talk with her for about a year. And then another pastor who knew my first spiritual director said, hey, why don't you go talk to this guy? He's about an hour away. Um, so it was a bit of a drive to go to him, but I was like, yeah. And I. there was something in me that said, this is what I need to heal. And it took a long time, but I feel like I did heal from that wound, if you want to call it that.
1: Yeah, thank you. That's a beautiful response. And just, you know, of course, like doing research and being a chemist, like there are the joys of discovery and the, mm-hmm. the, the delight in putting things together or creating narratives too. And But I also hear just a real sense of like gut intuition from you. Like there were things you knew intuitively.
2: One of the misconceptions I think about people who are head-based is that there isn't a heart connection. I think that there is this pathway between them. And if you give it a chance, they talk all the time. And I mean, when I see people who are head, like Don Bassam talks about this, the fact that you can start with the head, you can start with the heart. But eventually get to that place that's deeper than either of them, you know, so you can have that conversation once you begin to realize, oh, it's there. Um, And again, I think it's because of the music that it was there and I didn't even know it until I began to do the spiritual direction stuff.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. And my other question really is just a sort of thank you for dropping that. You were also a high school teacher for quite some time because you, you were laid off after 9 11. You felt this call into spiritual direction and companionship and holistic spirituality. But like you said, it was kind of a long game for you. Like it wasn't like, I'm going to do this vocationally. And it's like real wisdom, because I think a lot of new spiritual guides and companions get frustrated when they, you know, hang their shingle and start wanting to like do it for a living. And their clients might be in the single digits for a while. And like
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: are making a living series is like our, our most popular webinar. And because you yeah. really want to do it and you knew you wanted to do it, but you also knew that it was going to be a journey.
2: Really? Yeah. I got some good advice from my first. I remember sitting in his car. We were on our way to what he called my last supper. This was after I was laid off and I had no job and I had two young kids. And what the heck are we going to do? And he said, you know, well, you may be interested in the spiritual direction. And he was very well known and did a lot of spiritual direction. He says, you know, I don't make a lot of money doing this. I just want to let you know. It's not something that you can necessarily make a living at without a lot of work. So that was like, okay, I get that. So let me treat it as something that I'm going to grow into over time. And now that I'm retired, it's it's like a halftime job, I guess I'd say, for me, yeah. between the supervision and the spiritual direction.
1: Well, that's great. And then you can also, you're using the rest of your time creating this, this history of spiritual direction <laughs> yes. and starting to teach it and and share yeah. Uh, and share it with uh, with the community. So tell us a little bit about that work. I mean, you kind of introduced it, but what's um, the
2: grand arc for you? So let me start with like the middle and then kind of go both ways, backwards and forwards. My argument is in the mid 70s, early, late 60s to early 70s, spiritual direction as we know it began. Before that, it was something else, and there were a lot of other iterations of it. But the way we practice spiritual direction now became prominent, and it became prominent because of these training programs that were set up. There were different ways that people got to doing spiritual direction. The big one was the fact that—and I need to back up here a little bit. So let me just tell Ignatius' story, and that'll move us forward. So that's probably the best way to do it. So Ignatius came up with his spiritual exercises and gave them to people when he was alive— and over time, that form of giving the one-on-one spiritual exercises became lost, and it especially got lost after the Jesuits were dissolved as an order by the Pope in the late 1700s. And so nobody knew how to give the one-on-one exercises. Matter of fact, what became the way of doing the exercises what's what's called now a preached retreat, where a priest would give some talk three or four times a day on the points of the exercises. People would go off to pray, and they never talked to a person one-on-one. You could maybe arrange an interview, but maybe that happened once a week. The whole idea of talking with someone was lost. Then in the 60s, based on some research people were doing with Ignatius Constitutions and then the exercises themselves, they began to realize, oh, you know, the way we're doing this with the priest retreat really is not the way Ignatius meant it. And so people began to realize that, especially that happened. There was Peter Paul Kennedy in Buena, Wales, who was starting to give them this way. Uh, There was a big movement in Canada, up in Montreal and Toronto, where people were starting to give the exercises in this way. And then Vatican II happened. And Vatican II said, you know, all your religious orders go back to your roots. And for the Jesuits and for some other orders like them, this was Ignatius. And so they went back and said, okay... How do we get back to this method of giving the exercises? And they realized pretty quickly. So there's the 31st and the 2nd Congresses that happened in the 60s. And between them, there was a report that was issued by this committee. And The committee said every Jesuit needs to experience the exercises in this one-on-one form with an experienced spiritual guide, the words are. The problem is there were maybe 15 people in the United States that knew how to give the exercises in this way, and so there was this big push to how do we train people. Some universities started training, so St. Louis and Creighton were two places where people were giving courses on how to give the exercises. So that was one way. There were these big short-term training programs. So Father Don Maruca who was, I think it was the provincial of the Maryland province at the time, he started going around the country and giving these four-weekend training programs for the exercises and and the one given in North Endover, Massachusetts is where William Barry got exposed to this way of doing the exercises and so that's directly how the Center for Religious Development got started because he started having conversations with people about that but there were other people that did that so there was Canada so John English, John Veltry and those guys they were the first they actually started the first training program in 1969 and they had a particular way of doing it and then in Milford, Ohio, which was a Jesuit novitiate, Bill Creed started a program there. And then George Schemmel and Judy Romer, which is the one I know most about in Wernersville, Pennsylvania, started a program. And these were all to do the exercises. And then in Tacoma, Armand Nigro got really interested in some work that Giles Cousin was doing on the 19th annotation, which no one knew about, or they had forgotten about. Giles kusam says, I wanna do this. And he spent seven years actually working with people trying different ways of getting the 19th annotation. And Armand Nigro heard about it and picked it up, and he started a training program that still exists today, SEAL, on how to give the 19th annotation. So anyways, there were those, and then there were two others. And these are the ones that's interesting. All these guys were about the exercises. But for some reason, Center for Religious Development, and I asked Bill Barry about this, said, we're going to focus on spiritual direction, not the exercises. And then another group in Chicago, that was Paul Robb and Irene Dugan, she's a cynical sister, said the same thing. We're going to focus on giving direction rather than exercises. And those two programs were the first training programs for spiritual direction specifically as opposed to the exercises. And the exercises programs, they focused on, you know, the structure of the exercises, the graces, the different weeks, and all that kind of stuff. They were not that focused on what we consider training in terms of spiritual direction. These two other programs did. So that's like a bigger picture of what was going on there. The other thing that I, there's two other things that I find interesting is because both of these original programs were started by jesuits or people who were trained in ignatian spirituality they both based their spiritual direction on the 15th annotation which is let the creator deal with the creation so the director's role is to be not invisible but transparent to let god be the true director or christ be the true director and that was when ignatius proposed that that was radical Like, that's not how spiritual direction was done before then. People were saying, this is what I think you should do, or here's the path I think you should follow. That's so they were leading people. And Ignatius said, no, no, you're the fulcrum of a balance. I want you to just, you know, let God, let the spirit move what's happening in the directee." And so they both adopted that program. And you can see that if you look at some of the stuff that Barry and Connolly wrote, it's very clear. They said, this is based on the 15th annotation. And same thing is done at the Institute for Spiritual Leadership or ISL in Chicago. So that's a big part of it. And then the other thing that's really interesting, and this is where I got back to what I started with, which was supervision, is most of the training programs adopted the method of supervision used by clinical pastoral education, CPE. And they did that because there were people trained in it that came into the program. People said, well, how are we going to review what we're doing in a session? And these people said, oh, well, there's this thing called supervision and CPE, and there's these groups you meet, and you have a verbatim and all this kind of stuff. So they just took that whole process and stuck it into the Spiritual Direction Training Program. So ISL did that in Chicago. CRD in Cambridge did that. Bill Creed in Ohio did that. And then there are other programs like Guelph didn't do that. They focused on theological reflection and Wernersville had another whole thing going on based upon kind of Carl Rogers work on how to interact with somebody. But most of them were doing CPE supervision. And so our brand or our type of supervision that we experience now comes out of that CPE tradition. So all these connections, I think it's just fascinating to see what's going on and where people are drawing from.
1: Thank you, there's a lot there. The big thing for me is that you see spiritual direction really flowing out of the spiritual exercises of Saint Ignatius. And also, I, I didn't know that, I mean, I'm not Catholic, but I didn't know that the church had basically buried it's for for centuries it sounds like so talk about what happened is the
2: the jesuits became too political they were too closely aligned with some royalty and the pope said now we can't do this and so they shut it down and the exercises as a one-on-one thing was dying slowly anyways there just weren't people that knew how to do it but that kind of was the final nail in the coffin for the exercises and then they started up maybe 50 years later but by then it was just gone. The whole tradition of doing that was gone.
1: You began researching supervision and then it, it really turned into spiritual direction. Why do, you,
2: why do you think that that happened? I would answer it this way now, not that I had any idea that this is what was going on, but in order to understand supervision, you had to understand what the objectives of spiritual direction were. And so you had to go back to the programs and say, why are the programs the way they are? And one other thing to point out is that the CRD model of spiritual direction in Cambridge, so Bill Barry and Bill Connolly's, and then their model of spiritual direction, and the model that was developed by Paul Robb and Irene Dugan and then continued with Lucy Abbott-Tucker are very different models. CRD focuses on prayer and relationship with God kind of in an explicit way. And then ISL was more like, let's talk about your life and let's talk about conversion in life, which was a big thing for Paul Robb. And so they had trouble talking to each other, even though they're both doing spiritual direction, they kind of were in a different place. I mean, it's a funny story that Lucy Abbott Tucker talks about the time when Bill Barry came to guest supervise a program she was teaching, and they didn't really have the same language. It didn't work very well because they didn't really understand each other and what they were doing. So it's interesting, you know, we say we're doing spiritual direction. Uh, you know, what I see is there's different threads of spiritual direction and that they don't necessarily know what each other's doing or can talk to each other very well.
1: Yeah, well, I, I wonder, this is my follow up question, kind of connecting is the role that spiritual directors International plays in this history, right, founded in 1994, I think, in the Mm -hmm. early 90s, and how does SDI fit into this story?
2: Yeah, so that's relatively, so when you look at the story, if you look at like a graph of who shows up when, there's this time period from the late 60s to the mid-70s where all these programs get started, and they're all on their own. They're all doing their own thing. And you can see that in like the supervision forms they developed. They're all different. But there were attempts to get these folks to talk to each other and to get together. And I can't remember who told me. I've spoken to so many people about this. Somebody explained to me that they did invite like Bill Barry and Paul Rob and Bill Bill Creed to come and get together for SDI, to help start forming SDI. And they didn't come. But there were other people who had been in their programs that did come. And so it was interesting. They just didn't want to get out of their own silos. They were like, well, this is my program. I don't really want to try to build some kind of overarching program over the whole thing. But other people did. And that's the people who started SDI. And again, so they codified a lot of things. And they had a lot of arguments, you know, about like professional versus charism kind of thing. You know, what's this going to be? And those are things that you can see in the original programs were, you know, unclear. And so SDI worked out just by talking some of the things that people had been struggling with for quite a while in terms of what spiritual direction, including, you know, that codification of supervision as being important. Everybody did it. But it wasn't quite clear what they were doing with it, really. And so SDI helped with that. Yeah, it's so fascinating to hear that because I think we're
1: still, I mean, was formed with these divergent ways of practicing spiritual direction, right? These
2: different, Mm -hmm.
1: different threads. And then, you know, some people came together to form SDI to really work out just maybe not like merge those practices but you know sort of unity and diversity right like at least Mm -hmm. you can do things your way and you can do things your way but let's come together and learn from one another and talk things out and share our practices and we'll disagree and things will get messy and 30 plus years later it's it's basically the same like the diversity is changed in a lot of ways, right? Like we're now an interfaith, interspiritual organization and people call themselves spiritual companion or spiritual guide or offering spiritual accompaniments. And, you know, it's the same thing. Like we all share this practice at its core but we do it in different ways and we come together and there's certainly still silos and there's certainly still very strong opinions about how to do it and what's correct but we come together and we talk and sometimes it's messy but we love the practice and we we share it and we we hopefully grow and and advocate it for for more and more people so that's just very fun to kind of hear put things in perspective which i think a good history will do
2: right yeah. There's a, so um, as you're talking, there's a couple of holes that I think I'll mention. One is there was always this background of spiritual direction that was happening underground, I'll call it. And one order that was particularly good at this was the Cenacle Sisters. So I spent some time with the archives. This is the archives for the Cynicals of North America, and looked particularly at this one Cynical called Longwood, which is in South Chicago. And you see they're just permeated by this idea of spiritual direction. And this is, they were doing spiritual direction kind of under the table because spiritual direction after the Council of Trent, in whatever year that is, got put under the umbrella of confession. And so you couldn't do spiritual direction unless it was in the confessional. But there was still this group, they were formed in 1846, I think, And they were formed to give retreats. And so they would meet with women. It was all with women. And so they've always existed, but it was never like above board. You know, it wasn't something invisible. But if you look, you see it. And it's a great book. I'll just mention this. So this is some, I think it's Patricia Ramp's thesis that can turn into a book. It's called A Women's Way, The Forgotten History of Women's Spiritual Directors. First published 2000. A description of that background of spiritual direction going on that got tapped once spiritual direction became a a more public thing and then the other thing that i would mention and this is my kind of pet theory i think the rise of psychology and the impact it had on religious life is a real driver for why spiritual direction became a big thing so the the way i describe it is before freud religion owned our inner lives you know, everything was God speaking to us and all that stuff. And then Freud comes along and says, now there's this thing called the unconscious. And this is our stuff. And I think that all of the spirituality that developed is maybe not all, but a lot of it is wrestling with what do we do with this psychology thing? And you can see it in the literature. You can see it in the 70s. People like George Ashenbrenner were very wary of, you know, what do we do with these like Maslow and Rogers and those kind of stuff who are human potential movement? They wanted to push back on it. And then there's some other groups like Paul Robb in Chicago said, I'm going to embrace this And so psychology, his phrase was psychology and spirituality swim in the same river. That was pretty radical at the time. But again, there was this tension about what do we do with this thing? And so that's another kind of deeper current that I think runs throughout the history here in the kind of late 20th century.
1: Yeah, I'm with you a thousand percent. I can see how psychology and mental health have really become commonly accepted practices amongst the masses. Everyone knows what mental health care is and that we need to take care of ourselves and do therapy. And you know, and you say that psychology really sort of pushed along spiritual direction. I'm trying to sort of hit spiritual direction on the coattails of this mental health phenomenon, you know, because like you say, we care about mental health. We should also care about our spiritual health. And I mm. think this might be like a paradigm shift in moments for spiritual direction which is a big part of our work going forward. And so,
2: yeah, I'm with you in that. Yeah, there's an article that I just found that John Veltri talks about. It was written by Richard Rohr, I think in the 90s. It's called, Why Does Psychology Always Win? And he's talking about the fact that, you know, we who were raised when we were raised are totally immersed in this psychological matrix. This is the language we use. This is what we're comfortable with. And so when we tell people, well, I'm a spiritual director, and they'll say, what's that? What do they push towards? They push towards psychology because it sounds like what a therapist would do. And so I think, you know, we have to disentangle ourselves all the time from this, you know, the air that we breathe, the water that we swim in, which is psychological. So, yeah, it it helped start it. But I think at the same time, it's always makes it difficult for us to pull ourselves apart from it.
1: Yeah. The way I see it is when health insurance will cover spiritual direction, (laughs) We'll have have known we've made progress there.
2: (laughs) That's 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 very good. That's very Uh, good. Another thing that I noticed was that I'll call it contemporary spiritual direction, which again, started, I think, in the 70s, has put itself in a box. Or maybe it's been forced into a box because of, you know, prior to psychology and pastoral counseling and all these other things. Spiritual directors did whatever they felt was appropriate. And you can see this when you look back into history. If someone had a mental issue, they would talk about it spiritually. But with the advent of these other practices, we now are very careful to say, well, this is the box that I work in, and I try very hard not to be outside that box. And this is why we do supervision, all these different things that we do to make sure we stay in our box or on our rails, that we're not going in somebody else's tracks. And that's a new phenomenon, I think. That's something that arose as psychology became embedded in the culture, the way had to make sure we're not stepping on somebody else's toes.
1: Yeah. Let me ask you this where do you see this history going in the future, or at least not the history, but the story of spiritual direction and companionship as it hmm. at this moment? Well,
2: you know, it's interesting. I've not been that connected to what has been happening, you know, the interfaith part of it is not something that i know that much about and so i've been part of some sdi programs where i've heard about other faith traditions adopting spiritual direction and what they do and how they do it and how that interacts i mean to me that's another complication in the sense that you know before when i did spiritual direction i did it for somebody within my faith tradition and so a theology was not a big deal because we agreed on our theology but now that we do it like when i meet with people and they could be Catholic, they could be evangelical, they could be fundamentalist, they could be Jewish, they could be atheist. It's a lot harder. And so I think that's one of the challenges now is that it's become so broad. You know, What do you do? Do you specialize in one particular faith tradition? Do you go broad? How do you tap into another faith tradition and still be effective? So when I was doing my training at Chestnut Hill, one of the professors there, uh, Sister Kathy Looker, talked about how a Hindu had come to her and asked for spiritual direction. And she met with him a couple times and she said, I can't do this. I don't know enough. And so I think that was, for me, a good realization is, you know, there are places maybe we shouldn't go because we just don't know. And so being careful about where we say I can work or not work and be effective as a spiritual director or tap into something that we would find to be deepening i think that answers part of the question it does for sure i mean
1: each of us has to discern you know our our sort of spheres of expertise is and really just discerning what the person who comes to us needs out of spiritual direction and you know i think for you know somebody who wants to deepen in in a particular tradition and that's not your tradition that's a pretty good sign that you might not be the right spiritual director yeah
2: yeah i was just talking with someone Yesterday, he came to me for supervision, and we were talking about someone who was in another faith tradition, and he realized he didn't know, and he hadn't even thought about that. And so that was one of the things I thought was useful in supervision for him to say, oh, maybe I need to either ask this person, be curious about this faith to help me grow in it, or I need to read up on something, but I shouldn't blithely go along ignorant and not trying to grow my own understanding of what's going on
1: sure exactly right like don't be someone you're not right but i also believe like somebody could be practicing a tradition that is not my own but i can still be present to that person's spiritual journey and their growth and and help them discern how they're growing spiritually how they're being nourished in their in their practices without needing to necessarily know all the particulars and details of it but if somebody Mm -hmm. wants that then right that's when i can say i i just don't know (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah 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 for
1: sure Well, Paul, um, my last question, what is next for you and in
2: developing this work? So I'll put a little plug here. So I am taking a little break. I'm actually writing a paper just on the history of supervision, which was originally what Maria asked me about doing. And I'm finally going to do it after nine years. So I'm going to write that. And then I have another type of supervision I'm interested in based on Benedictine precepts. And then I'm going to dive back into this history. There's some holes I need to fill. And one of the things I want to say is I created an email called historyofsd at gmail.com. And if somebody knows about this period of time and would like to talk with me, I would love to talk with them. I've interviewed maybe two dozen people now from this era. And unfortunately, you know, they're getting older and dying off. But if there's people who have been in a training program that I don't know about, or just something that they have, they think would help, that would be great. Because I want to, like I said, fill the holes. Everybody says this sounds like a book. And so that's what I'm starting to put my arms around. I've never I've never written a book. I've written chapters in a book, but I've never written a book. So I know it's complicated and hard. And I know that I am retired. So that gives me time to do it. But so that certainly is there. So I think, yeah, that's where I'm headed. Okay. I'm enjoying other things. I'm trying to stay retired as opposed to like getting full-time immersion in this, which is sometimes hard because it's, I love it. I mean, you know, you are talking about the intellect and the heart. There is something pulling me into this and it's been there for a long time. I can't necessarily name it, but I know it's there. And so I'm just going to follow that and see where it goes. Yeah, I,
1: it's it's evident that you love this work and this project. You're very passionate about it. You have a lot to say and share just off the top of your head. And you have made it, I mean, that's infectious, right? You make, you mm-hmm. make the history interesting to me and, and I'm sure to others as well. And that's what makes a good teacher. And so, you know, thank you for- thank you. Yeah, thank you for sharing some of this today. I'm happy to, I hope that people listening, if they want to share something with you that they might know, sd at gmail.com. Yeah, um,
2: one word, all smashed together.
1: Yeah, and we'll we'll put it in the notes and we'll okay. we'll let folks know too. They can reach out and that that would be helpful to developing this history. So Paul, Great. thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for all this. You're welcome.
2: It's a lot of fun. I can't, help talking about it. I got to stop talking about it with people. (laughs) Like I need to do something else with my life right now. So it's all good. Thank you.
1: If you're enjoying this podcast and you want to help us share and spread the word about the life giving practice of spiritual companionship, you can help us out by subscribing to this podcast through your favorite app. You could give us a like or even write us a review. Thank you for listening. This is Matt Whitney with Spiritual Directors International. Thanks again for listening. Your time and your presence here are deeply appreciated. If you liked this show and would like us to continue making them, please do subscribe now while it's fresh on your mind. Also, we would love to hear from you, so please feel free to send in your comments and suggestions to the email address podcast at sdiworld.org. SDI is the home of spiritual companionship. Learn more about us and our work on our website, sdicompanions.org.